0: Let's jump right into Hebrews chapter 13. Now, let me ask you a question just to kind of get our minds thinking this morning. And the question is this. What would you say are the sort of top few, top maybe five, top three things that Christians are looking for in a church? Now, I assume every Christian wants a, a good church, right? A, a growing church, a thriving church, a biblical church. That, that goes without saying. But, but what exactly are we looking for when we're looking for a church? What would it feel like? What would that experience be like? Well, right now, I think, I think probably the American church invented this, but we have a word called church shopping, Right? We go and and stop at various churches, we look at them, we try to think through, is this the right church for me? And so we think about music, right? I I come from the land of hipsters in Portland, and if you're looking and and shopping for churches, you might ask the worship team, "Do, do you have a banjo player? That's what I'm looking for. Or you might say, I I need a really good youth ministry or children's ministry. We We look at ministries, but at the end of the day, there are various things that we're looking for so that we can find the right church. Sometimes it almost feels like we pick churches like we pick restaurants. It's whatever our appetites sort of desire in the moment. Well, when we come to Hebrews 13, as Phil read it earlier, in many ways it kind of puts all of those sorts of shenanigans to rest. Hebrews 13, I'm guessing, as you listened, as you read, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get all up in our face in many ways. This is a hard text. It's a glorious text. It is a convicting text. And it almost feels like a weird way to end a book right? You've seen those preachers, right? Those, those preachers that, that are all of a sudden they're preaching for a while, they look up at the clock, and they realize they've been preaching for an hour, and they're on point two of a four-point sermon. You've been there. I pray it hasn't been under my preaching, but you've been there, and you're like, land the plane. And so what, what they do when that preacher's up here realizing, like, I gotta land the plane— they just start sort of verbally vomiting, right? As much as they can, trying to get through their notes as quickly as they can. And it almost feels like this in Hebrews 13, right? There's just, you know, it's, it's the, 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 the author, the preacher, trying to land the plane in a sort of emergency way, just kind of vomiting as much information as possible. It feels like that, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Hebrews 13 really does answer an important question for us. And it's a question that actually Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 sort of asks implicitly. Look at Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 before we jump into Hebrews 13. Hebrews twelve twenty-eight we read, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We're called to worship God. But then the implicit question in verse 28 is, well, how? Well, what does this sort of worship look like? And the answer to that implicit question is chapter 13. This is what worship looks like. All of chapter 3. It's the whole kind of, it's the whole baggage. So this is the big idea This morning, and it should be behind me. Christian worship is, first, characterized by love. Second, it is centered around an unashamed gospel. And third, it's empowered by God. Three points. Worked out that way this week. Don't you love it? All right, let's get to business. Go go to verse 1. Let's, let's look at what this Christian worship looks like, what it's characterized by, which is unselfish, other-oriented love. Verse 1, let brotherly love continue. Now, in, in many ways, what the author's going to do is give example after, example after example after example after example after example of what this love is characterized by, what, what it looks like, what it feels like, how you would know if you're experiencing it. And so right here you have almost the catch-all that Christian worship is it's all about brotherly love. Now there's, there's lots of type of relationships when you think about it. Uh, two that come to mind for me are friendships and and sort of romantic relationships. But if you think of friendship. And if you think of romantic relationship, both have sort of at their core the idea of choice, right? You choose your friends. You choose to go on a date with someone or you choose to reject them, like my college experience, right? Friendship and romantic love have this idea of choice. Not so with family, Huh? Like I I didn't choose to share a womb with my twin brother. I didn't choose my sister. Those choices were just given to me in God's providence. And it's interesting, right out of the gate, when talking about love, the, 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 the type of love that the author describes is family love. It's love between brothers and sisters. When I was in college, I attended a church... Um, for for, for a while, in which I, being white, was pretty much the only white person in the entire church. And I remember being struck that the first day I walked in, and I loved this, they called me brother. Now, little did they know, even right then, that I can't clap on beat, and they still called me brother. I, I didn't dress like many of them, we didn't have many of the same preferences, and yet, I was their brother. Why? Because we had a common parentage. We had Christ in common and that was sufficient. I love that. That's what true Christian worship looked like. It's, it's a community that comes together that might not look the same, that might not have all the same preferences, and yet we call each other brothers and sisters because we have Christ in common and that is enough. True worship has a sort of family feel to it. But then second, look at verse 2. Don't neglect hospitality. Now, the, the idea of hospitality is, is sort of kindness or love given to a stranger. That, that's what the text says. And you can think of a stranger as someone who's an outsider. Now, I grew up, and maybe you, you heard this phrase, phrase Danger, stranger, right? Every stranger was thought to be a danger. Well, that's far too simplistic, isn't it? And here we see that that not only should we be interacting with each other like brothers and sisters, we should actually be showing love and kindness to strangers, people who are outside, people who might not be in the inner circle, People who, in some ways, have no claim on your love. We're called to love them. Now, now we need to use prudence. We need to have wisdom. We need to be careful as we do this. But we must do it. We must. This is part and parcel of what it looks like to be a Christian. We love the outsider. We pursue those who are strangers and show kindness to them which, let me just add, will look very, very different depending upon your life circumstance. right? The, the this single person, the married with young children, the empty nesters, hospitality looks very different. But at the end of the day, at its core, it's pursuing those who are strangers, those who are outside your group, and loving them. It, it might look like baking some cookies to the neighbor who just moved in. It might look like inviting people to Thanksgiving because they don't have family in town. It might look like opening up a room to a college student. It might look like just inviting someone to church. It will look like many things. And yet, the attitude for Christian is not ultimately stranger danger. Ultimately, it's how do I make a stranger, an insider, a family member, how do I love them, encourage them, and show kindness to them? That's what Christian worship looks like. It's, it's, it's a church, it's men and women who are pursuing people who are outside and thinking through how, in love, they can bring them inside. Then the third example, if you look at verse 3, is that we're to remember those who are in prison as though we ourselves were in prison. Now, this is difficult love. This is a difficult type of love. Probably what's probably in mind here is that in this time, when persecution was getting hotter and hotter, there were some Christians who were being imprisoned for their faith in Jesus Christ. And so there was a natural tendency to just distance yourself from them. Now, if you think that's cowardly, I think we do this all the time. I was thinking about in my own life. You've probably been in those situations in which you're with Christians and non-Christians, and a topic gets brought up, and a Christian stands, kind of makes a stand for Jesus Christ, and it's going to be awkward, you're going to lose some social capital, you're going to be ostracized, and so you throw them under the bus. You you distance yourselves from them. You, You don't want any part with them. You know that it's better for them to get hit by a bus than you to be hit by a bus. It's risky to love in those sort of situations, isn't it? It's easy to love maybe a brother and sister, but when you love someone and it's going to cost you something, it's it's going to cost you maybe friendships. It's going to cost you influence or status. That is far, far harder. I mean, I I don't think middle schoolers are the only ones that struggle with peer pressure here. It's hard to love when love is costly. It's hard to stand by a man and a woman as they make a stand for Christ when standing shoulder to shoulder with them will cost us something. And that's what we have here. It's, it's, Christian worship is men and women standing with the vulnerable, the weak, the imprisoned, and standing shoulder to shoulder as if we were weak and vulnerable and imprisoned and letting the cards fall as they may. The fourth example is sort of an interesting one. Look at verse 4. It's the example of marriage. Where we're told that marriage ought to be honored by all, let the marriage bed be undefiled. What we learn is is that love honors and love protects marriage. Now, there very much is a reason why biblical Christianity has fought against the redefining of marriage in our culture. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you that in many ways marriage is being assaulted in our world. The, the whole idea of one man and one woman in covenant before God, that is an unpopular definition of marriage. And though we shouldn't acquiesce to the, to the culture, no, notice what the author says in verse 4 towards the end of it. He says that that, that two kind of categories of people are going to be judged. In, In the Greek, it's two words, adultery and sexual immorality. And when you think about it, those two words scan the spectrum of all sexual sin. Sin within marriage, adultery, and sin outside of marriage, sexual immorality. And so what the author is saying is that if if you're really concerned with marriage, if you really want to honor and protect marriage, then the most important thing you can do, it's not political, it's personal. It's to keep yourself from sexual sin. And, And notice that this is not just for married couples. This is for all people, single people and married people if you want to protect marriage, if you want to honor marriage, then in many ways before we get our country in order, we've got to get our homes in order. I mean, it's, it's easy to, to, to speak out against a defense of biblical marriage. What we need to do, though, regardless of how our government defines it, we need to speak out, but, but the political debate is not the, pri- the, the, the primary debate. We need to honor and practice and protect marriage personally. That comes first and foremost. And let me just say, if you're struggling in this regard, if your marriage is struggling, if you're uh, struggling in particular as it relates to sexual sin, there are lots of people who actually have groups of accountability. There, There are lots of ways in which men and women would love to walk with you and encourage you as you seek to be chaste and pure in this season cuz we're living in a weird world technology is very much a good thing but technology can be used because it's it's a tempting thing love protects and honors marriage that's the first example the the fourth example and then there's the fifth watch out for money i i, I told you this is All the uh, all the hot button topics come in one chapter here. Verse five: Keep yourself from the love of money. Instead, be content with what you have. After all, this great, awesome, wonderful promise baked in here: God will never leave you or forsake you. Now you might be wondering, what in the world does this does money have to do with love? What does money have to do with worship? Well, in in, in many ways, money exposes the things that we love. Money is not necessarily evil. And yet what the author is is sort of underlining is that Christians think about money very, very differently, or they ought to think about money very, very differently. The thing the author underlines is contentment. We don't love money. Instead, we're content with the, the money that God has given us. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with ambition. Ambition can be a good thing. There is a sort of thing as healthy ambition. What what contentment is, and this is, I'm quoting from one author, what what contentment is, it's the absence of fear. And we see that in verse 6. Money promises security. Money promises status. It promises protection. It promises, you know, you're going to be okay when that recession hits. Money promises happiness and influence, right? You can go on the list. Money promises many things. You could think of it this way. The love of money promises securities when fear begins to arise in your heart. And so it's natural that we pursue it. Because without it, we're left vulnerable. And yet true contentment comes in, verse 6, and says something so simple and yet so profound, which is, no, God, money is not my God. God is my helper, verse 6. And as a result of that truth, I will not fear. Money ultimately can't protect us. God can. So how do you know maybe if, if you're beginning to um, have money as your God, if, if you've, your heart has been gripped by money in such a way that you might be loving money? Well, let me just ask a, a few rhetorical questions for you to consider this morning. If you never get that promotion at work, are you going to be okay? Okay. If you never get to, uh, that house you've always dreamed about, or that bigger house, or that greater house, are, are you going to be okay? If you never get to go on that dream vacation, Hawaii, Waikiki, are you going to be okay? If you can never fully financially send your kids to college and pay all for all of it, are you are you still okay? if what you currently have is all that you will ever have, are you still going to be okay? The Christians in the book of Hebrews, when they confessed Jesus, there was a strong probability that they were putting themselves in grave financial insecurity. Families would disown them. Employees would fire them. No wonder this This verse was drilled inside of them. God is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now I'm guessing if you become a Christian or if you are a Christian, it doesn't mean that you're going to lose your job. We're, We're not there yet. And yet, we need to remember that it's so easy to begin to love money. Contentment is not a very, uh, it's not a very alluring thing. We're not like, mm, what am I looking for in a, in a mate? I want someone who's really content. Like, that's not what we're looking for. And yet this is one of the great and chief Christian virtues. Contentment. And, and when you see it in someone, right? When you see that person who gets passed over and they still are joyful, we love it. It's contagious because there's something deep inside of us that says whether it's a good time or a bad time, like Job said, you know, whether the Lord give or take away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, six, there's one more example we have here, and that's the example of leaders and how we ought to interact with leaders. That love and worship compels us to interact with our leaders in a certain way, a particular way. And we see it in verse 7 and then again in verse 17. The first instance, look at verse 7. This is talking about how we interact with leaders in the past. The idea is past tense. We are to honor those leaders who past tense spoke the word of God to us. And then secondarily, to imitate their words ways. Imitate their lives. So just because maybe your youth leader has left or because the old pastor has gone doesn't mean that you can't remember what they preached to you, the gospel that went forward to you, that you might honor them by accepting that and imitating their way of life. Gone heroes, even dead heroes, are still wonderfully helpful Heroes, and we do well to honor them and to imitate them. But then, second, we ought to obey and to submit to our current leaders. Verse 17. Let me read it. It says, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this whole idea of submission, obedience, but especially the word submission, it's a, it's a pretty dirty word. It's, a, it's an ugly word, maybe, But in some ways, look at how the author frames this whole conversation. Because you might be thinking, well, here's just a pastor who's telling other members of a church to submit to a pastor. That's a bit self-serving. But actually, that's not how the argument is framed at the end of verse 17. Right? Obey, submit to your leaders, and then it says, Let them do so with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Obeying and submitting to leaders is for the church's good. It's for the church's advantage. Now, I I feel like I have to say this, and this is not going to shock anyone. Elders and leaders are not fallible. They make mistakes. Just ask my wife, ask my kids. They are infallible. I said it wrong again. Hopefully that's not saying something about my mental stability right now. Elders are infallible. They make mistakes. I heard what I did. I heard what I said. Alright. Elders make mistakes. I'm just gonna I'm gonna just toss the word. I am living proof. This is all purposeful. Living proof. Elders' leaders make mistakes. And as such. There are times when members should not submit to their leaders and elders and should rise up when the gospel is at stake, when error is being taught, when Jesus is not being preached. Members should rise up and say, no, we want preach, We want to hear Christ and him crucified. And yet, when it's issues of liberty, when it's important issues but maybe not clear issues— Unity really is the priority. And if you think of it this way, God uses elders, God uses leaders to teach us how to trust Him. That, that as we trust elders, as we trust leaders, we are learning how to trust God. So pray for your elders. I know them. They need your prayers. They know their limitations. And they know and go to bed every day realizing that they are going to have to give an account to God for each and every one of you. So pray for them. Encourage them. Help them grow and mature. Fight for unity. After all, it's for your advantage. It's for your good. Because there is... A very big difference between an elder who is doing his work as a burden and doing his work in joy. There is a far great difference between a man who preaches to you groaning and he who preaches in love. And I'm so grateful that I'm a pastor of a church that gets to preach every Sunday out of love and not out of groaning. So thank you. My family thanks you in regard to that. So to kind of summarize all of that, what does Christian worship look like? What does it feel like? Well, it's characterized by love, otherworldly love, uh, unselfish love. Don't you want, don't, don't you love this description? It's filled with sacrificial love, hospitality, and purity, and unity. I think all Christians deep down want to be a part of a church like this. But you can't manufacture this. This doesn't come even by effort. It comes as we center our lives around a supernatural message. So now, second, Christian worship is centered around an unashamed gospel. Go back to verse 9 with me. Let me read this. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. Now, what was going on here is that, um, you know, th- there was this temptation for the, the, the Christians in this church to go back to some form of Judaism. And, and so to, to sort of think that, oh, I, I could find favor with God if I just became a vegetarian. If I just ate certain things and didn't eat other things, then God would, would like me. I'd have favor with him and all things would be right. But, but the other says, no, 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 no. They needed to be strengthened by grace, not by food. And to make this point even clearer, the author gives one more reason. His last reason as to why Jesus is best. This, uh, if you've been walking through the book of Hebrews with us, you know that that time and time again, one of the major themes is that Jesus is best. Right? Jesus is better than anything and anyone. He is best. He is better than best. He's bestest. Which I know is grammatically incorrect, but it is theologically correct. Jesus is bestest. And here we have the last reason as to why Jesus is best. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, on the day of the atonement, the sacrifice was made for the sins of the people. And they would take that offering and they wouldn't keep it in the temple. Priests wouldn't touch it, they wouldn't eat it. It had to be gone outside of the gates, outside of the people. And the simple reason for that fact is that it was unclean, it was unfit to be with the people because that offering was a sin offering. It bore the sins of the people. But once again, that sacrifice, it's just a type. It's just a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice that would come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus too was sacrificed outside of the gate, wasn't he? He too took on the sins of the world And became unclean. Verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the gate. In order to sanctify the people through his blood. Now. That is the gospel. Jesus becomes unclean. So that through faith we might become clean. Regardless of your sin. If you think in your estimation your sin is great. Or your sin is small. You you can't clean yourself and scrub your sin, your, your sin off of yourself. You, you can't do it. It's impossible. And yet there is hope. Because there is a heavenly stain remover. And his name is Jesus Christ. Who takes all of our sin. He takes it upon himself. And he then gives us his perfect righteousness. Now we didn't earn this, did we? We can't merit this. It's all by grace from start to finish. But it's also something we need to put our faith in. And we need to run towards this sacrifice. Verse 13. Let us go to him outside of the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, that verse, verse 13. I really think this is the litmus test of faith. Are we willing to bear Jesus' shame? To go to him, to associate with him, to run towards him, and bear his reproach. I think in so many ways, this is the barrier of Christianity. This is the stumbling, block. this is the wall that any person who is not a Christian It's hard to get over. It's the idea of fully associating with Jesus Christ and giving him all of me. Maybe it's, the Christians might use the word of surrender. It's a scary thing. It might even be a terrifying thing. To to go to him. Because a little Jesus never did anyone any harm. Our world doesn't care about sprinkling Jesus on your life. That's fine. Oprah does that. But but the whole idea of giving Jesus all of you, going to Him and associating with Him in totality and confessing that I am Jesus, that's a, a riskier thing. That's a harder thing. To to say that I I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that I'm a sinner. That because Of my sin, I deserve God's wrath. But I will accept Jesus' payment for my sin. That's not a very popular message. And yet this chapter ends with saying we need to go out to the camp, that very camp in which Jesus became unclean for us, and associate with him. And then we get to verse 15, which is the liturgical climax of the entire letter, which says, Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips, and acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share with you, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. True biblical worship centers around Jesus Christ, and it's filled with praise. Right? Praise with words and praise with deeds. You look at verse 15, we're to praise God with our words, and then verse 16, praise God with our deeds. We're to sing, and we're to sacrifice. It involves all of us. Paul would put it this way in Romans chapter 12, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And I know this is a scary thing. I know that if, when you say that you're a Christian, when you associate with his name, there is risk involved. And yet, whenever this happens, know this, there is a wonderful promise. Verse 14, for here we have no, no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity said, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. He then went on to say that if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you get neither. This world can take our lives. It took many of the the, the Christians in the, the, the first century when this book was written. This world can take our freedoms; they can they can hurt us and wound us and reject us and bind us and neglect us. But one thing they cannot take is our prospect of our home. They can't take your passport away because that passport was given in heaven's embassy, stamped with Christ's own blood. Aim at heaven, and you get earth thrown er thrown in. Aim at earth, and you get neither. This is what faith is all about. It's what our faith is all about. It's about being unashamed with our association with Jesus Christ and Him crucified, which is never going to be a cool message. It might not even be a relevant message. I don't know how you make that a relevant message in the sort of pragmatic, relevant way. But it is heaven's message. It is a glorious message, and it is the only message on heaven and earth in which we can be saved. Christian worship is characterized by love first, it's centered on Christ, and now thirdly, and very, very briefly, let's look at how this actually is empowered by God. Just look at the benediction, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, who bought again from the dead, Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, two things should be underlined in this benediction. The great shepherd, he equips you with every good work working in us, that which is pleasing in his sight. God equips us. God works through us. Not only does God save us, but then God equips us, he matures us, and he helps us worship him. As you put your faith in Jesus, he will enable you, he will equip you all the more to worship him and to love your brothers and sisters to greater and greater degrees. Christ's love flows into us and then flows through us. Just think of it this way. We love our brothers and sisters and we do so even when they're unlovable because at points all of us are unlovable. And how do we do that? Why do we do that? Because Jesus loved us when we were unlovable, when we are unlovable. We show hospitality. Why? Because Jesus first showed us hospitality. We were outsiders, and Jesus, through his death, brought us inside the church. We remember those who were in prison. Why? Because Jesus first was imprisoned in order to set us free. We ought to honor and protect marriage. Why? Because Jesus is our ultimate bridegroom. We ought to submit and honor to our leaders. Why? Because Christ submitted to his Father and in so doing purchased our redemption. And we ought to run without shame to Jesus and praise him and follow him. Why? Because he died outside of the gate. In all its shame, in all of its uncleanliness, And he did this for you. He did this for me. And having done this, he now welcomes us into newness of life. Into a newness of life and into a city that cannot be shaken nor can it be taken away. Christian worship is characterized by love. It's centered around an unashamed gospel and it is empowered by God from start to end. Recently, I was uh, reminded of uh, sort of a a pastor author acquaintance that I know who was overseas at an, in a country that will not be named it 's an unreached unengaged um, country it 's closed so so you can 't go as a missionary or pastor and this man went to encourage this missionary who was there and um, there, was a, there was a bookstore there. It was actually a Christian bookstore in this closed country. I didn't know that those existed, but in this closed country, there it was. And so he's walking around looking at these Christian books, these theological books, these great books, and going, This is amazing that this, these books, this bookstore is here, and the government knows about it. And the missionary says, Yeah, but look at what, what books are not here. And he kind of looked and he was looking. He's like, I I can't figure it out. And finally he looked and realized that one topic of of the Christian faith was not there. there. There was books about Jesus. There was books about a doctrine of God. There was books about Christian living. There was not one book about the doctrine of the church. Why? Because the government knows that if you get one individual to follow Jesus, no problem. You get a community to do that together to love like this letter calls us to love, they're going to have problems. That's going to do damage. That's what we read in Hebrews 13. This is the sort of worshiping community that we should be looking for. A community that loves so supernaturally, so unselfishly, that it damages the kingdom of darkness that our government wouldn't want us to gather because of all the problems that it would lead to them. That's how the book of Hebrews ends. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your son. We are so grateful for his calling upon our lives that, that not only did you call us to ourselves, but then you called us to each other, Lord, that we might love each other, that we might encourage each other and help each other to finish our race well, Lord. Lord, we're f- thankful for the privilege of gathering today and we might we, we pray that we would honor you in all that we do, and we pray this in your Son's name, Amen.